Thanks for listening to the Movement Church Podcast. Movement is located in Newport, Kentucky, and you're always welcome to join us on a Sunday morning at 1030. Hope you enjoy this podcast. Church, my name is Josh. We haven't met. Uh, love having you guys here as we celebrate Mother's Day. So, so as best I can tell, there are three, there are three big controversial issues in church throughout history. One is communion, the Last Supper. We've been talking about that the last two weeks. We're going to talk more about that next week. We'd love for you to come back for that. The second is baptism, and we're going to be talking about baptism today. And the third is whether or not kids are a distraction in church. They are not here. I love seeing carriers coming in with one-month-old babies. I love kids running around in this space. I love kids that say, I want to be here up for the whole service. I love that kids say, I want to go downstairs with with my own age group and be down there for that. You will never be ostracized by me. You'll never get a dirty look from me. And if you do get a dirty look, let me know and we'll have our bouncers take care of that person, okay? But we love that. We love love having kids here, especially today as we celebrate Mother's Day. On a related note, if you're interested in helping out and being a part of what we're trying to do is we're trying to help parents uh, help their kids find and follow Jesus. If you want to serve in, in a movie kids, we'd love to talk to you about that. Uh, we have opportunities for you to serve, whether it be uh, holding those precious babies and you know maybe changing a diaper or giving them a bottle, uh, whether it's teaching in our, in our uh, toddler age group or up into, up into first through fifth grade. We'd love to talk to you about that because we're also dreaming about what's next uh, for us as a church in terms of youth ministry and working with teenagers. So a lot of great things happening here at Movement Church. And so today, we're talking about baptism. We're talking about baptism mainly because next week we're going to be doing some baptisms. Uh, we're going to baptize at least one young man, and I want to talk today about what baptism is, what we believe happens in baptism, why we celebrate the way that we do, and ultimately what are we celebrating in baptism here at Movement Church. And so for me, this is an incredibly important thing. This is an incredibly important thing that that we're able to to celebrate. And so I just want to put my cards on the table here, kind of up front, and let you kind of know where I'm going with this. And if I were to kind of summarize what baptism is, I would say this. I would say that baptism is a crucial act. Baptism is a crucial act. So I I don't want to downplay But I also don't want to add too much or add some sort of requirement aspect to baptism. But I want to be very clear that I believe and what we teach and what we practice reflects this or attempts to this idea that baptism is an absolutely crucial act. Now, if we look at kind of the different ways that churches have celebrated baptism today and throughout history, some churches practice infant baptism. Now, this is a callback to the covenant, the first covenant that God made with Abraham where God looks at Abraham, this childless old man, and says, guess what? I'm going to bless you. I'm not going to bless you for your own enrichment. I'm not going to bless you just so you have have no problems. I'm not going to bless you so that everyone can look how good you are. I'm going to bless you and your entire line, your entire family tree, in order to be a blessing to the rest of the world. You're going to be the conduit for my goodness in the world. Now, here's the thing about a covenant. A covenant is not a contract where two parties agree to do something, and they say, if we do these things, then therefore the, the contract is met. A covenant says, is where God is saying, essentially, I'm going to do this. And you can accept it, you can receive it, or you cannot. 
But I'm going to do this regardless of your actions. And so this idea of infant baptism is a very beautiful way of calling back to this. Of saying this child is now part of this family. Part of God's family, part of this church's family. That we are kind of, we are blessing him, we are blessing her, we are bringing them into the family. It's a way for the family, for the church to say, this kid belongs to God. It's a beautiful beautiful thing. I know some of you have, have had that opportunity that you have, have been baptized as a child, as an infant, and you have no memory of it, but you understand some of the, what that means. Other churches practice baptism after some sort of a coming of age rite. This could be a confirmation, this could be a catechism class, this could be a time where a child is kind of approaching that young adult stage, right? And they're just starting to figure out what they believe and starting to own certain ideas. And after this class where they're, where they're given some instruction, they're given kind of an understanding of what's going on in terms of following Jesus, they then go through this process of baptism. Now, it's not to erase all doubts or give a, a full or complete understanding of God's grace or what Jesus did in the world. It's a way for them to start that process. It's not to say, here's all your questions, here's all the answers to those questions. It's a way of stepping into that. It's a, it's a, it's a great thing. What, what a powerful thing to be able to say, we're going to be intentional about this. We're going to raise up our kids to know Jesus. Other churches, like movement, we do this. We practice full immersion or dunking. We go full hog for it, right? We are all about that. We go for full immersion for a couple different reasons, not because we say it's the perfect way, the right way, or the only way to be baptized. We say this is our way that we celebrate baptism. What we do is we look back to the Bible, we see how John the Baptist baptized people. We see that John the Baptist fully immersed people and brought, brought them out, namely or chiefly, specifically, as he baptized Jesus. We see the early church doing this as well, that when they would baptize somebody, they, they would fully immerse them. That's what the Greek verb literally means, to fully immerse. So we're going to go full on and do that. Not to say that if you were sprinkled or if you were baptized and poured over as an infant, that that is somehow invalid or we're, we're saying that is wrong. We're saying this is how we do it. For, for me, the truth on this is, is that I grew up, and this was kind of pounded into my head. This is something that was kind of pounded into my head that this is how you're supposed to be baptized. But I have to be honest. How you were baptized or when or if you were baptized are kind of secondary questions, particularly the how, the method, and the when. It's kind of a secondary question because I think we first have to step back and ask the, the very basic question. I think sometimes even in church circles, or maybe especially in church circles, we take for granted that we are all on the same page. And it's a very simple question. What happens in baptism? What actually is going on? Now, when I sit down with someone and I talk about baptism, I, I often lead by saying that there's nothing special about the water. Uh, we, could, we could baptize you in a, in a pool, in a bathtub, we could go down to the river, we could, we could go to a pond, although you might have to clear away some muck and like, you know, you might want to make sure you don't have staph infection afterwards, right? But you could do it anywhere. You do it in a church, you do it in front of people, you do it kind of a, as a private, more intimate setting. You, you could be baptized anywhere. I also tell them that it's not like you're going to come up out of the water and colors will be more vivid or you'll hear angels and choirs of angels singing. Uh, that's not really what's going on there. In fact, the church I grew up in, we would have this thing that we would do after every baptism. And we didn't have a TV up front or a projector or even like the overhead deal with the transparencies. But we would sing a song every time someone was baptized. 
We don't even sing the full song. We don't even sing the full hymn. We just sing a chorus of this hymn. And it was like this, it was like this Pavlovian response. Someone comes up out of the water, the organ goes in, and now we're singing this song. And the lines for the song, and I won't sing it for you because, you're, because I like you guys. I wouldn't put you through that. It goes like this. Now I belong to Jesus. Jesus belongs to me. Not for the years of time alone, but for eternity. And that was the closest we got to chorus of angels and it was what we did and we did it every time but it also kind of tells us how we viewed baptism this is a tricky conversation and far more nuanced and elaborate than what we are going to talk about today but what this kind of belies and kind of indicates is that that for them in that church and what I grew up with baptism and salvation were wrapped up because what's the line from the song now I belong to Jesus we didn't sing that song after someone said, I have made this, this proclamation, I have said that I am in, I have, I have prayed and asked Jesus into my heart, I, have, I, I believe. It's not then that we sing the song, it's after they come up out of the water that we sing the song. Now, I want to be fair to my church tradition because they have such valid points and they, they were so good to me and they have so, they're so responsible for who I am today, but this poses a problem for me. It's tricky. It's tricky because I first worked as a youth pastor in a church that was similar. And I was a youth pastor, and so what are we trying to do? We're trying to tell teenagers about Jesus. So we're trying to be involved in their lives. We, we lead Bible studies, and we get together, and we play video games. We show up to their, their baseball games, and their football games, and we, we hang out with them, and we eat bad food and drink way too much Mountain Dew. We do all the stereotypical things trying to connect with teenagers for the intense purpose of saying, I'm going to show you the love of God so that you can respond to that love. And one of the things that came up really early on is I was working with these volunteers, like these crazy people that would give up their time unpaid to hang out with teenagers they weren't related to. And this idea came up and this kind of contention and this discussion, this debate came up as to whether or not they were baptized, these volunteers, and if they weren't, could they be leaders? And that was really hard for me because it was like this extra hoop that these people had to jump through. It's also tricky for me because I don't know about, I don't know if you know the full story of Movement Church or you've been around here for a while, but this became an issue right at the start. Movement Church is about five years old, and prior to our first meeting on a Sunday morning, prior to, to us coming together, before we sang a first song together, before I gave a first sermon, before I met any of you, I was sitting around with a group of pastors. See, starting a church is difficult like starting anything is, and you need financial support. You also need accountability and some leadership. You need some kind of some guardrails. You need some guardrails not to, not to restrict what you do, but to keep you from ending up in the ditch as a church or as a pastor. And so what we did is what, the, what was kind of established in this group of pastors was kind of like a board, this management team that was kind of over me, had, had insight and had accountability, and they, they had leadership over me. I submitted myself to them. But there's also this financial component, and so there are a lot of questions on the, on the front end. Like, they are making an investment that comes from people's generosity, people's offerings at their churches to help this church get started. One of the first questions was whether or not I understood baptism the way that one individual, one pastor on that team understood baptism. See, for him, he would say that, that when someone is baptized and they come up out of the water, that right there is the moment that they are saved. And I have to say that this pastor is an incredible guy. He has integrity. He loves Jesus passionately. He prayed for us, supported us, is still praying for us and supporting us, but he and I had a big disagreement there. 
And I tried to be as humble and as, as, uh, as, as much, have much integrity as possible, but I had to kind of say, I, I disagree with you on this. See, my understanding of, uh, of salvation is that it occurs at the presence of faith. It occurs at the presence of faith, that when we believe that Jesus is who he says he is, that he died on a cross and rose from the dead so that we could be reconnected to God, that our sins... Our mistakes, all the ways that we implicitly or explicitly don't embrace God's best for our lives and our world, all of those screw-ups have been utterly and completely wiped out. And the purity, love, and truth and justice of Jesus stands in for the mess of our lives. This is what happens when we are saved. I look at Romans 10, chapter 9, and Paul writes this to, to this church that's just getting started and just trying to figure it out in the midst of a, of a Roman world there at the epicenter. And he says this, is if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's when we say yes to Jesus. That's when we are welcomed into the love of God and God's family, now and for eternity. This is that moment now this pastor now this pastor in his in his defense didn't see baptism as this extra step he didn't see baptism as like okay you believe but now you got to do step two to fully be saved he would say and i, I try, i'm trying to be as, as charitable as i can here and, and and also summarize some of what the conversation was but he would say that baptism and faith were this intermingled thing that it was one and the same that they came together that baptism was this act of faith, but our faith wasn't fully realized until we were baptized. So it was, it was, it was, not, it was not this extra thing, it was the accepting of itself. And, and they would look at the, what the first church, church did. They would look to the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, we see Luke telling us, recounting this, uh, retelling of this sermon, the first sermon that Peter gave. And there's this conversation after the sermon where, where these people who have heard what, Jesus, what Peter has just said about Jesus and what Jesus did, and they, they, are, they are cut to the heart. He says this, says, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. My friend, this pastor and others would say, here it is, the first time that someone says, I want to say yes to Jesus, what do I do? And Peter says, repent and be baptized. He doesn't say, go, go pray this, or, or just believe in your heart. He says, repent and be baptized. These, these are pretty clear instructions. And so I, I don't want to just say that the baptism is this purely symbolic act, because it's not. I don't want to say that the baptism is, is, is somehow required for salvation, because I, I don't want to say that either. But I do want to say it's this crucial thing. And while I could disagree with that pastor, and I could disagree with others, and we could still come together, and we could worship, I, I have a hard time pinpointing and saying, looking at the whole of Scripture, looking at Jesus, looking at what the early church did to say, you know what? Belief isn't enough. You have to do something else. I know some would say, well, this isn't an extra step, this is part of it, I get that, but I just have a hard time saying that there's that next step. I want to celebrate baptism, but I want to put it in the right context. So for me, that is the bottom line, that faith is that moment where we are saved. Faith is that moment when we believe, that, that moment when we said this is what we believe, this is what we are participating in, that, in that symbolic death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. That this act, this baptism is a sermon in and of itself. It's a sermon that declares the work of Jesus on the cross in the empty tomb. 
Now, some of you are in agreement with me, and maybe some of you disagree. And I, and I love it when people agree with me. Who doesn't, right? I, I love it when we, when we have, a, have a position and we find commonality. That's a, that's a great thing. That's what, that's what makes Facebook so addictive, right? You find your little bubble. And, and I appreciate that, but I also understand that as that pastor graciously stepped off of our team and, and others said, you know what, well, I disagree with you, but, but we can still work together. And I would say, well, I, I'm not fully quite confident in this, but, I, but I'm confident in this larger thing, this idea that what Jesus did was, was an incredible act and, and we could be saved here. We could take this step and baptism is crucial, but I don't want to put that on as some sort of prerequisite. I, I can appreciate that. And I can also appreciate the fact that my understanding of all this is infantile. You know, the more you, more you know, the less you know. The more you, you pursue life, the less you realize it. So I, I want to be very clear that, that I'm not saying this as an authority. I'm not saying any, all of this is like, here's what you have to believe. I'm saying this is, this is where I am. And this reflects how we celebrate baptism here at Movement Church. And what we celebrate, or what we teach, and what we practice here at Movement is that in baptism, we celebrate salvation. It isn't this required act. This isn't something that we have to have full understanding. It's a, it's a reaction, a declaration, a celebration of salvation. That this is what baptism is. When, when someone goes down in the water, in that symbolic death, and that symbolic burial, and they are brought up in that symbolic resurrection, and we, we, we look at all the symbolic ways that we see purification and being cleansed, but we also see this way that we can be obedient, that the early church, this is what they did, that when someone came to faith, they were baptized. We can see that clearly over and over again in this pattern, that this is a crucial thing, this is an important thing, and we are celebrating what's going on. But that brings us to that second question. So what is salvation it's a word maybe gets thrown around and maybe you were a part of a church that said you have to be saved and maybe that pastor would would be even sweatier than i am right now and they would talk about the fires of hell and they would they would talk about these horrible images and and yes there there are those images that we see in scripture of of just this horrible place where people that have rejected god go but what we would see also is that this idea of salvation is a, is a very complex thing for us to understand. It's been explained multiple ways, and I, I would affirm so many of those different understandings, but, but I would also recognize that every metaphor that we come up with comes up a little short. I was reading this message by a, by a pastor named John Piper. And John Piper has this incredible ability as a communicator and as a teacher of the Bible and of, of, uh, as, as a pastor the, to be able to express God's wonder God's glory, God's immensity, God's power, and he's kind of that reminder to me that sometimes we make things so small, right? We, we make things so individualized that we miss the grandeur of all this. And Piper says this about salvation. He says the biblical term salvation is used to cover past, present, and future dimensions of God's work to bring us into everlasting perfection and joy. So Piper here is saying that salvation is something that happened, that there was an event. There was an event where this was completed. That it's already happened. It's been, it's been done for. It's a, saying that on the cross, at the Good Friday, and it was sealed by Easter Sunday, that Jesus on the cross didn't begin something. Jesus didn't partially do something. Jesus completed this work. He completed this work of saving, this, this grand transference of God's goodness for our brokenness. Paul writes in his letter to the church in Ephesus that salvation is something that has happened already. 
that on the cross, the, in the empty tomb, this work is finished. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, he says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. It's not a gift, it's the gift of God. So salvation is a past event. On the cross, we are saved. It says that you have been saved. This is one of the great gifts that we have when we look at the, the Greek New Testament, the way that the Greek language kind of gives such clarity to verb tenses and before your eyes glaze over. It just tells us what's going on and when it happened and how that action is playing out. So this is something that happened. But, but then in another, another letter, the same author, Paul, because he wrote a whole mess of this New Testament, he says that, that, that he's writing to this church in Corinth, this, this, this group of Christians that are just a, a wreck and are trying to mess, and mess with and understand and process what it means to follow Jesus. He writes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Paul is essentially saying here is this idea of grace, this idea of grace that you are totally bankrupt as a person. Like, like, like you are totally bankrupt as a person, not compared to your neighbor, not compared to who you see as this horrible person on the news or throughout history. You are morally and completely bankrupt. You have nothing to stand on when compared to a holy God. That compared to a holy God, like I don't care who you are, there's no getting in. There's no way that you can begin to approach God. There's no way you can begin to have a relationship with God. And that this message of the cross, where this fact is laid out true and completely and bare, and this fact is right there, but then Jesus says, I am going to take the place. I am going to eliminate those barriers, eliminate those, those ways in which you cannot connect with God and make it possible to those who are on the outside of this, to those who don't believe, this is foolishness. This is absurd. This is ludicrous. This isn't fair. But this is the message. This is the gospel. And he, Paul here is saying is that those of us who are being saved, he's saying that there's some sort of ongoing process here. That as we follow Jesus, there's this continuing renewal. There's this continuing uh, uh, action where we're be being made into something new. We're being redeemed. So salvation happened. Salvation happens. But then it goes forward. Paul writes another letter to the church at Rome. The church at Rome is experiencing persecution on, the, on a pretty acute scale. Like when, according to the other New Testament letters, it seems that Rome had the most persecution going on. This would also come to the form of, of uh, economic persecution. People would lose their jobs. People couldn't get interviews for jobs. People would be kind of pushed to the side societally and, and maybe in terms of where they could live or who they could be around or, or what they could even buy. And this persecution would, of course, intensify to the point where people are being arrested and executed. But at the time, Paul is trying to write them in a, an encouraging word, trying to remind them, call them back to something. He writes this in chapter 13 of Romans, verse 11. Paul says, our salvation is nearer now than we first believed. So it's something that happened. It's something that's ongoing. And maybe there is even a promise of something more when it comes to our salvation. There's this kind of looking ahead that there will be continuing this, this depth or this, this idea that we continue to, to be enriched and we continue to find more of God and experience more of God in this. Not because we somehow are, are, are leveling up on this, but somehow God is revealing more and more of himself. Yeah, I've heard critics of Christianity. I've been talk, I've talk, when I talk to people, sometimes the, uh, this idea of a deathbed confession, kind of this, well, I'll, I'll, I'll believe at the end. I'm going to live my life up to this point. And 
according to the gospel and according to the Bible I read, that's a valid thing. Like you can do that and be loved by God and be accepted. But I think you also miss out on so much. See, see, when we celebrate salvation, it's not just one thing that happened and we could check that box and the rest of our life is, is ours. But when we say yes to God, when we say yes to Jesus, ultimately what is happening is that we are going to experience more and more and more. It's something that happened, it's something that's happening, and it's something that will happen. The salvation for us is this, this incredible process where we are being made new. And I've heard that, I assume that you've probably heard people like me talk about salvation before, and you've heard these metaphors being thrown around, and a, and a popular one, one we read in Scripture, and one that many people use to explain what happens here is this, this kind of criminal justice metaphor. This idea that us and our brokenness and our you know, lack, and our lack of being holy compared to God, we are, we are found guilty. We're on trial. And, and what we see is that, that we are somehow so wanting. We have no chance. We are so unable to connect with God on our own. And the metaphor goes essentially that Jesus comes and, and takes all of that wrath, takes all of that punishment that God is going to put out because God is not just a holy God. God is a just God. And if you've experienced injustice and oppression, if you can put yourself in the place of the, the New Testament uh, Christians here who experienced the persecution, you would probably say, yeah, I want my God to be just. I want somebody to take the oppressors, to take those that are, that, are, that, are, that are ruining my life and taking away my life and the life of my loved ones and my ability to provide for my family. You would want that God to act. But I think that sometimes we look at it with modern eyes, we think that's kind of mean, isn't it? How could God put all that punishment out there? And how could God put all that punishment, put all the punishment, all that we deserve on his own son? Is God just like this abusive dad? Is God this like sadist? I think we have to step back and say that the metaphor that Jesus is the son of God is just that. It might be better, it might be more helpful, at least it's helpful to me to think that Jesus is God on earth. That Jesus is not separate from God. That Jesus is God. That Jesus, in all of his glory and power and holiness, comes to us. One of the early hymns of the church said that, that God came down as Jesus. That God made himself low and so that we could grasp it. So we could understand what's going on. And this God, this Jesus, willingly, knowingly went to the cross, right? This is not a surprise to him. He's been calling his shot. And he goes there and he willingly and lovingly sacrifices himself. And yes, he cries out to his father. And yes, there is anguish. And yes, there is pain. But I think this was God himself sacrificing himself. See, see, I think that we miss this idea that the, that, that criminal justice, that courtroom metaphor so, so well gets at, but sometimes we twist it, we say, well, how could God do that to his own kid? I think the better question is, how could God do that to himself? See, this, this is to me what I understand salvation to be, is this, this grand transference of God's goodness in place of our weakness, our fault, our sin, our brokenness. It's cosmic, it's huge, it's immense, and it's beyond imagination. It's beyond comprehension. So we have this gift of the Bible that gives us these handholds, gives us these basic understandings. And so salvation. Salvation is this incredible gift. 
This salvation is this incredible gift where we say yes to this. Salvation says, I want this. And it's something that's happened, so it's right there. And it's something that's ongoing, and so it's not that we're somehow missing the boat. And there's something that's still coming. It's this promise. There's more. So when we celebrate baptism, we celebrate this act, this salvation, this transference. And when we celebrate baptism, what we're doing, what we're doing is saying that the work has already been done, and I get to experience this, and there's this promise of more. In baptism, we celebrate salvation. So should you be baptized? Should you be baptized? Probably. If you haven't yet, you're at that place where you're saying yes to Jesus. You've accepted this gift. You have said, I am in, I believe this, not because I have full understanding, not because I have, have removed all doubts, not at that point where I just, I just feel like I am so confident, but because I have faith, where I've been compelled, I've been moved, I've been stirred, I've been challenged, I've been provoked to have faith that this idea that God came as a man, suffered and died and rose again, it's ludicrous, it's absurd, it happened, and not only did it happen, but he did it for me. If you say yes to that... And you haven't been baptized, you should be baptized. Because I think it's a critical thing. If you've been baptized before, but the time you maybe weren't even really aware of it, it was as a child, as an infant. You were there and you were part of it and your church family, your family was saying incredible things about you. This is still a beautiful act. This is still something that matters. This is still something that rings of truth and love and God's grace. And if you were baptized again, it would not do away with that. For you to make that conscious decision, to declare something that is already true, to celebrate the salvation that's going on, you can be baptized. If you look back on your life and you've been baptized before, but, but so much has changed, or maybe one particular thing has changed in your life since then, and you are sensing this desire to be baptized again, to you I would say maybe. To you, I would say maybe, because sometimes there's this thought that I need to be baptized again to get clean with God. And yes, when we are baptized, there is this image and there's this, this symbolic act of purification, of being made clean. But understand this, God's good, good gift of grace on the cross wasn't just to everything up till your baptism. And the rest, you just got to be really, really careful. No, no, no. This gift of grace is for your past sins your current sins, and your future ones. It's an all-encompassing act. So you do not need to be baptized again just to feel clean. It's not like you're declaring moral bankruptcy and you're running away from your creditors. This is a way for you at any point when you are baptized to declare that you are forgiven completely. You do not need to be baptized again, but I'm not here to stand in your way of following that if that's something you choose to do. I'd also say to those of you who are maybe being considered being baptized, that maybe you're doing this because you understand things more now than you did when you were first baptized. I was baptized at age 10. I was baptized at age 10, and I didn't understand nearly what I understood now. But I also look at Scripture when Jesus says, don't don't keep the little kids away from me because the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. There's something about kids that understand this more. It's not a naivete, but maybe it's a wonder. Maybe it's a propensity to have faith. You're always 
going to come up short in your full understanding. So don't discount what you did just because you think you now understand more. Baptism isn't about full or even partial understanding. There is no entrance exam in terms of salvation. Some churches will require or encourage someone that when they come and they're part of their church that, to be baptized in that church, even though they were baptized in a previous church. I would say that, that we don't require that. We don't encourage that. We, we, don't, we don't even make a point of talking about that. But if that's something that you want to do, we can talk about that. That's something that we are open to. But for me, the bottom line is this. We can disagree on the specific details as to what happens in baptism. We can disagree on the timing or the, the method or the means of baptism. But here at Movement, we want to be clear that baptism is a gift and that baptism is a celebration of salvation. It's a gift that we see Jesus partaking in that Jesus was baptized. We see the early church practicing. We see this pattern all throughout the book of Acts and the rest of the New Testament that when someone comes to that place for the faith where they say yes to Jesus, they are baptized. They are baptized quickly. There's kind of this immediate reaction that this is, some, this is a crucial thing that they do, that they do over and over again. And we want to emulate that. And so I have a few questions to close here. And as I do, the band's going to come up and they're going to get us ready for our time here at the end. But I want to ask you this. And first I want to ask this question about those of you who have yet to say yes to Jesus. I want to say this. You have valid reasons. You have valid reasons for not saying yes. You have valid reasons based on your experiences. You have valid reasons based on, on the stories and the reliability of others. You have valid reasons to question and say, I don't know about this whole organized religion thing. You, you have valid reasons. I'm not here to argue with you. I'm here to tell you a story and invite you into it. And so, and so I guess if you have yet to say yes to Jesus, I would challenge you over the next few moments and these next few minutes as we sing and we celebrate communion, that maybe this is your time to understand, okay, why haven't I said yes? What, what are those things that are getting in the way? And understand this, that I still believe that God is pursuing you. I believe that God is still waiting for you. He's not giving up. To those of you who, who have said yes and haven't been baptized, or you're considering being baptized again, I would ask why. Why haven't you been baptized? What, what is that? What is that thing that's holding you back? And for those of you who have said yes and have been baptized I would ask you, how is your salvation still happening? How is your salvation still happening? Paul is clear. This is an ongoing process. When you get baptized, you don't graduate and then you never pick up a book ever again, right? You don't, you don't graduate and you never have to go back and do algebra. You don't graduate and you say, I never have to talk to those people ever again. But when you are baptized, you are graduating into a mission, into a life where things are still ongoing. And so I would ask you, how is it ongoing? Here in the moment, the band's going to play, and they're going to sing a song called It Is Well. And oftentimes, I, I sing this song, and I think about how I, I have this, this moment of serenity and peace when I, when I just accept what God is doing in my life. Or, or I accept the fact that there are things beyond my understanding. And I was thinking about the, this morning, as I was thinking about this song, and I think, I think there are times where I have to say, I don't fully understand the salvation story. 
I don't fully understand what God did or what Jesus did on the cross in the empty tomb. I don't fully understand all the mechanics. I don't understand all the how. But it's still well with my soul. And so I would encourage you that as you stand and sing, that this would be a time for you to reflect on those things that maybe you don't understand and understand that God honors that. God meets you there and you don't have to give up on those things or just put them under the rug. But you are still able, you are still able to follow Jesus. As the band sings, we're going to open up these tables at the front. And as we've been talking about the last two weeks, there are things that happen at the table that are powerful. That we say thank you to Jesus for the gift of salvation. We have this moment we are connected to God because of Jesus and connected to one another. We are at this point where we are sent out on mission because our salvation is still happening. And we celebrate. We celebrate salvation. So I'm going to pray. And I'm going to invite you guys to stand. The tables are open. And the band's going to lead us. Let's stand.